Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. How do you know the bathroom is in use when you're at an octopus party? The sign on the door says Octopied. My guest today is coral biologist and co-founder of Blue Finance, Angelique Braithwaite. Getting her start studying coral in the Caribbean put Angelique face-to-face with some of the most pressing issues facing our oceans today. It's through this experience that motivated Angelique to work towards protecting the oceans at the policy level through her organization, Blue Finance. Blue Finance is shaping and reframing the seascape around protected areas in the ocean. In today's episode, we chat about what it's like to be a coral reef scientist in the Caribbean and what it takes to protect the ocean. Angelique also shares some of the instrumental local outreach she's done, including putting on an ocean-themed theatrical play. She also shares a very funny dive story at the end, so stay tuned for that. Please enjoy. Angie, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am very excited to chat with you today. Thanks. I'm very excited to be here. Actually, I love being a marine biologist, so I'm happy to share. (laughs) Wonderful. So I kind of want to start a little bit, not at the beginning, not at the end, somewhere kind of in the middle. Um, You headed the marine research section of the Coastal Zone Management Unit in Barbados for over a decade. And you did a lot of research on the coral reefs down there. Could you explain what your role was exactly and some of the research that you were doing and what you were seeing on the reefs. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, the, the coastal zone management unit in Barbados is a really interesting agency. Um, It was part of the ministry of environment at that time, but what we did is the marine biologists worked alongside coastal planners and alongside coastal engineers in order to manage the coast in a holistic fashion. In other words, to manage the coast and the marine ecosystem, not just looking in the sea, but also looking on land and getting the two of them to connect in the best way. My research focused really around coral reef ecosystem health. I monitored the corals to see what was going on. And I had a really big interest in coral diseases. I was the only person who was diving and actively looking for diseases and got excited if I saw a disease because it was something new and something unexplained and something that we really didn't know that much about back then. So I looked a lot at coral diseases, what different types of diseases they were, how they impacted the corals, how quickly the disease spread. And we looked at um, some potential causes for disease also. We, we dabbled a little bit in coral reef restoration because, you know, at that time we had quite a lot of, of issues with boats dropping anchor on the reef. We've since solved that. We put in permanent moorings. But, you know, um, we had that issue. We had uh, coastal builders who wanted to build structures in the sea, et cetera. And we kind of experimented with how, you know, can we actually move corals from one location to the other and they survive. You took established coral heads. This isn't just like little fragments that you see for restoration projects. These are like established coral heads and you actually were able to move them to different places? Yeah. So I'm going to say straight off, that was not my focus. That was not my research. That was being done by, by a colleague at Coastal Zone called Andre Miller. And he okay. started that and we all got pulled into it. And um, it, it, it's because, you know, we looked a lot at coastal planning, right? So, for example, yeah. they wanted to extend the harbor and they were dredging and they are going to kill everything in the harbor. So these things are going to die anyway. So what we did is with the knowledge that they're going to be killed, 
um, actually move them, yeah, physically move them. You just chisel them up. And it, it was really funny because corals are such fragile animals, right? And we tell right. people don't touch them, you know, your fins and everything can really cause a lot of damage. And here we were with chisels, chisels and hammers and you actually hammer them up carefully from the base and you transport them very carefully in tubs of salt water to where you want to put them. And then you cement them or use two-part epoxy to get them into place. So we started this really before all the coral reef restoration work that, that is, is actually looking at growing them. And I mean, this is not something, there are lots of issues with it, you know. It worked. Of course. We were able to monitor it them, but for only five years afterwards. I don't know what they look like now. I don't know if they're long lasting impacts. And the other problem was is that, you know, coastal developers are then, wait, hold on, you can move these corals. So that means, look, I'm going to put my stuff here and you could just move the coral from one place to the next, you know? Mm. So, which is obviously not what we wanted. We wanted you not to kill the corals in the first place. So there are a lot of issues with it, but. Yeah, we were able to do it and show that it worked for at least five years. I don't know if those corals actually reproduced. We didn't look at that. And that's also very important, you know. But yeah, we were able to do interesting work like that. A huge part of my job that I never envisioned. I mean, when I when I studied marine biology, I didn't think I'd have to talk to fishers and divers and <laughs> owners of chicken farms and pig farms. I didn't think about public awareness and how important it is for everyone to know the importance of corals, what harms them, how their actions have an impact, and, and how we can create solutions. So a huge part of my job was actually public awareness. And I mean, I'm, I guess I'm lucky because I'm also a dive instructor, so I can talk the language of divers. And I'm also a dancer and involved in theater. So in all things, I try to bring the arts in because you need arts, I, I think, to bring the message alive. And so people aren't aware that they're learning. You know, you, you don't want to stick them in a classroom and pound them with information. You want the information to kind of dance its way into their minds and bodies and get them to change the way that they, they are acting. So photography, visual arts, books, <laughs> TV. I mean, we see a lot of photography. I mean, a picture is worth a thousand words and art yeah. is a very, very powerful tool. Um, I'm very curious about your theater work, though. Were you like putting on plays about coral reefs? Like how did what did that look like? Yes. Oh, those were such fun. Oh, my word. They were such fun. First one we did was called The Sea. And that's just Bayesian dialect. Um, and we did it with school kids. So we went in and we spoke to the, the kids about the issues and what we're doing. And we actually developed the production with them, you know, and they did everything. They helped us with everything. We had like bolts of cloth and blues and greens to stimulate the sea. They had, we worked with um, a sculptor, a known uh, sculptor and artist in Barbados, Omawali Stewart. And we they helped to create the sea animals and it was amazing because they were learning and having fun. And then we put on the production. And we've done others with adults also. And, you know, I, I always work with the producers and the directors and explain the message I want to get across. And then we craft a story together. And then at the end of each production, we always have, you know, a discussion with the audience. And, you know, this is where you really get to the meat of the matter. And this is where, you know, I, I'm so happy because from the questions that are being asked, you know, that they really get it. And that if they continue to be stimulated, the audience, they will get out there and help you do something. I had an amazing boss. I mean, I can't think of many bosses at that time, in those times, that would have allowed me, you know, to put on a theatrical product. I mean, come on, we're a scientific institution. We were working with engineers <laughs> and planners. And the, you, you want to do a dance? Are you mad? You know, this is not. And I, I have to shout him out because his, um, his name is Leonard Nurse. Dr. Leonard Nurse, he was the director of Coastal Zone at that time, and he was, you know, broad enough in vision and range uh, to allow me to, you know, use all of these quirky, <laughs> different ways of educating the public. That's wonderful. I really love that because the public does get more involved that way rather than like sit down and just listen to a lecture. And also you really get other stakeholders, like you mentioned, the producers involved and really getting their perspective on how best to interpret things. And you really, I think they get a better understanding of why it's so important too. So really you're just involving a lot of different facets of 
walks of life into that by incorporating theater. I love that. Such a cool story. You mentioned part of your job was to study coral diseases and you were kind of the only one doing it. Why did you want to study the diseases? Were the reefs, you were starting to see a little bit of a decline in the reefs and you noticed black band kind of propping up? Yeah, I wasn't the only one doing it. There weren't many people doing it, okay. but I was not the I was not the only one. But it was something new that was that was cropping up. And it, honestly, I was looking for a master's thesis, and I was looking for something that wasn't very well known. And it, it's kind of you know, it's not blam in your face, you know, like the mm-hmm. impact of nutrients that cause macroalgae to grow, and you know, decline in in herbivorous fish. Those are boom, you can see it. But diseases are quite insidious. Yes, if you have a, a nice big <laughs> a nice big piece of black band not nice you have um <laughs> black band disease for example that is something that's quite vis- visible but I mean what my research showed was that the disease on the reefs was really it was quite small it was like 10 percent but it was yeah. everywhere and that's also something that that's important in fact I think the things that you don't see so so often are that that are not so big those are the ones that are perhaps the most dangerous because you tend to ignore them there's been a lot of work done on disease and, and my, my part of it was small, you know, I was just recording, measuring and monitoring disease. The other part of that coin is in the labs to mm-hmm. actually look at these microbes and see why, why they're spinning out of control, why they're being destructive and, and how we can minimize. And, you know, they still don't know a lot about diseases. And there's a new one that, that cropped up this year, stony hard coral tissue loss. The new disease that they found, I hope I'm not going off topic. I was going to ask you, could you explain (laughs) kind of the two diseases? Black band is really uh, descriptive in that there's a huge black band kind of around the affected area on the coral. But could you explain a little bit more about black band and a little bit more about the new disease as well? Okay, so the diseases we found back in the day, it was black band disease, white plague, white band disease, which really um, destroyed most of the acroporids that we had. And the acroporids are really, really important for small island developing states because they're the ones that protect mainly against high energy waves. And I think most people know that corals are really important in in dissipating wave energy. And the specific corals that did a lot of that were acroporids. So we've already seen the impact of disease on our reefs. Black band, it's a black band of microbes in there, and they're basically killing the coral as they move along. Most of them acting as bands. The stone, this new one, stony tissue, stony hard coral tissue loss, and I'm not an expert on this one. It cropped up like two or three years ago. This is different from the ones we had before because the ones we had before tended to affect one species, like white band, or even if they affected a lot, it was like five or six different species, like black band. But this new one is affecting everything. It is progressing really, really quickly, and it is wreaking havoc on reefs from Florida all the way down through through the Caribbean and they still don't know what causes it but I mean just instinctively and even back in the day you know of course we're going to link it back to nutrients from sewage and or fertilizer or Mm -hmm. human impact in in some way but it's apparently very very and I'm not a microbiologist it's very very difficult to to actually isolate the pathogens and that's a whole other branch. And I would say more difficult branch than mine. Like I said, I was just involved in documenting and, what, and measuring the impact of the disease. But to, to really do something about it, you have to understand the disease and understand what's causing it and then try and minimize that. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. I mean, you definitely had the more glamorous job, though. Coral reefs. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. I used to go to work in a bikini and my friends used to swear I wasn't working. But I was, I was working, I was working very hard. And anyone who works in the water knows that it, it takes a lot out of you. It's fun. It's where I wanted to be. I would advise anybody to study this if you love the sea. But, you know, it, it's not all fun and games. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I joke about that a lot. And that, that was one of the reasons why I started the podcast, because people do. They see you going to work with like a dive tank and like, they're like, oh, man, I want to do that. But at the end of the day, after you've been in the water for 12 hours, the viz may have not have been great. You probably got stung <laughs> by a couple of things. And you're like, are you sure? Like, this isn't that glamorous. <laughs> you, you hit that nail on the head. But I love it. 
fan. I, yes. I would like, <laughs> have to love it. And this is yeah. what I'm saying. If you love the sea, it's kind of like a natural fit. Yes. I, I love mm-hmm. corals. I'm a coral reef ecologist. You could focus on fish. You could do, uh, you could be an oceanographer. You know, you could work in the lab. You could be a microbiologist. You, there's so many different, you can work with people and be um, a social scientist. Or mm-hmm. you could be interested in valuing uh, marine ecosystems and be, be an economist, an environmental economist. There, there are lots of different jobs and lots of different little facets of marine biology that you can get involved in if you love water. Absolutely. Which brings me to one of my questions. What inspired you to become a marine biologist? I mean, you grew up in Barbados, island nation. It does seem like a perfect fit. <laughs> you know, actually not. Like most most of the people in Barbados and most Caribbean people can't swim. It's crazy. You know, we, we have this saying that sea has no back door. Um, so there's a, there's a natural fear of the ocean. So I was honestly a little bit unusual in that I swam. And I'm, I'm giving all the credit to my dad. Dad grew up in a, a seaside town called Penny Hole, which in Barbados context is back a bush. It's like <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. Um, <laughs> and he learned how to swim. And when my brother and I were very small, daddy taught us how to swim. And then he was also a lecturer at the university. He taught um, biology. When it was time for me to choose what job I wanted to do, Daddy actually suggested it as something that I might be interested in. And mm. then I, I went to a career showcase and the marine biologist drove up on a motorcycle and I love motorcycles. <laughs> so I followed him to see, you know, what he was doing. He was doing marine biology. I was like, well, here, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, I had a love of the sea from a very young age and, and that's, I'm comfortable in the sea. I have a very healthy respect for it. But that is, I would say, 100% due to my dad. That's amazing. Yeah, I did see that you had a quote that the fact that increasing numbers of children are in the Caribbean are learning to swim gives you hope that that'll yes. kindle their interest in marine <laughs> conservation. And it's and it's true because you protect what you love, right? And if you're afraid of the ocean, it's really hard to get on the, the bandwagon of protecting it. Yeah, it is. I mean, there is so much. I have to say, I have to shout out the government of Barbados, the, the National Sports Council of Barbados right now, National Sports Council, Cell, um, National Conservation Commission, and uh, the Ministry of Blue Economy right now have come together. And they are embarking on training young children how to swim. And I mean, I I could not be happier. It's not just the joy of it, um, losing your fear, less cases of drowning, hopefully. But there are a multitude of jobs ranging from being boat captains to, you know, dive instructors to, you know, there's so many jobs, <laughs> you know, right. that, that are closed to a lot of Caribbean um, children, people, because they have this this fair to see. So I want to shout out the government of Barbados for that initiative. Yeah, it's very, very cool. Yeah, that's really great. So you decided you want to become a marine biologist based on you you were comfortable in the ocean and you saw one roll, roll up on a motorcycle. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I was good at biology too. <laughs> When these, when these three things combine, we have a marine biologist. So you knew when you went to school that you wanted to study marine biology. What made you choose corals? Let's see. Yeah, when I went to university, and shout out to Mona in Jamaica, they were fabulous. That's where I did my first degree. I just liked coral reefs and everything around it. You know what? I don't know what made corals mm. click for me. I never thought about it, actually. I just... You know, the fish are cool, they're cute and all that, and they move about, they get in all the way. They're very important for, for reefs. I don't know. I, I don't know. The corals, you have to look a little harder to see their beauty. And to me, they're a little bit more complex than than fish. And um, yeah, my marine biology friends and I are always arguing about which are better, fish or corals. But um, it's, a, it's a dumb argument. I'll, I'll give you that. But, you know, we, we do it anyway. Um, I just find that corals are amazingly complex. I mean, there are these tiny organisms, most of them are just a few millimeters, that collectively form, I think it, they're the largest biogenic. Biogenic is a structure that's generated by, by animals. The largest bi, biogenic structures on the planet. I mean, it's amazing. They form, they form colonies and they share everything. You know, they, they share food. They have a very simple nervous system. They share that. They're just amazing little little organisms. I find them more interesting than fish. But yeah, I, 
I can't really say why. Sorry. No, you found them interesting. That's all it is. And they are beautiful and fascinating. It's it's funny when you go on dives, a lot of people are always looking out. I think it's the it's shifting a little bit nowadays, but a lot of people look for the big stuff, right? They look for the big fish, they look for the turtles, dolphins, they look for the big animals, sharks. But if it's in the coral where a lot of things hide, and if you slow down and get a little closer and look, there's so much in there. Even just watching the corals themselves is pretty entertaining. Yeah. Yeah, I I find. And, and you know, it depends on when you go. I mean, I'd been a marine biologist for many years and then decided I can't call myself a marine biologist if I don't see corals spawn. So so you know how corals reproduce? Yeah. Some corals annually, they time it by the moon, and they eject all the eggs and the sperm into the water column. And it's it's an amazing event. And then, of course, with all that protein in the water, all the other fish and organisms come around to feed. And I'd never seen it. It's like a, a plume coming out. And if you're close enough and you're careful, you can actually see the egg bundles. So these um, little gelatinous bundles just being ejected from each polyp and coming out. Mm. And there there's so many of them. It's It's amazing. And, uh, you know, as part of that, we were diving at night. I, I think usually when you dive at night, well, I don't know. I just never saw all these things before when I dived at night. <laughs> but we're diving <laughs> at night looking to see if we could find corals spawning. And, I mean, we saw some amazing things. Like we saw the, the corals, you know, lashing out their tentacles and, and things that I had never seen before. And I think, you know, that's what makes this job so interesting because you think you know everything. You think you know a lot because you've been on this reef a gazillion mm-hmm. times. And then you just come one day and you see something that 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 just freaks your head, you know. So I, that was a bunch of different stories in one. But anyway, you get, you get the idea. <laughs> Watching Carl Spawn is amazing. Absolutely. And whenever you go dive in, you never know what you're going to see. It's true. It's very true. You never, never know. So you have your degree and you worked for the Coastal Zone Management. What made you transition into your current role at Blue Finance? And could you explain a little bit what Blue Finance is and does? Yeah, I worked for the government for 18 years and I was looking at, and I love my job, but I was looking at, you know, what else I could do. And we had decided that we wanted to extend the marine protected areas that we had in Barbados. Um, and I was lead on that, and we were getting ready to designate a pretty large swath of marine space as a marine protected area. When you say marine protected area, in does that mean it's a complete take zone, or are there certain concessions for local fishermen to come in? What does that mean for marine protected area? Yeah, that's a really good question because most most people don't ask it. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, when you say MPA, it covers all of them. But in a small island context like Barbados, there's no way that you're going to keep fishers out completely. I think right. most people know that fishing is, fishing is part of the problem. But, you know, fish is also an excellent source of protein and it's deep in our culture. So nobody's going to give up eating fish. The idea is just to do it in a sustainable fashion. So the idea was to have some areas and to design this with the stakeholders, um, not only the fishers, you know, but the divers, um, the jet ski guides, the boaters, the swimmers, have like a, a total plan so that each user is comfortable in the space. Fishing is just, is just one of them. So the idea with fishing is to have maybe one or two areas that were no take zones, no fishing allowed, but in the rest of the protected area, you could fish sustainably, you know? So for example, if you have a fish pot, you must have a biodegradable panel. None of this has come to fruition as yet. Huh? I'm just saying what the ideas were were at the time, but have, you know, we actually prefer to call it a marine management area because, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's too much of like, you can't, you can't, you can't, and people always find a way to. <laughs> so it was trying to work with the different stakeholders and different communities to find solutions that they were comfortable with. Everybody would have to give up something, but it's not just the fishers giving up fishing, you know, to to have a, a, a management space. But marine, I'm going to just call them collectively marine protected areas, but they take a lot of money out. Huh? <laughs> it takes a lot of money. You yeah. need to have boats. 
You need to have people to educate. You need to have people to enforce. You need to have signage so people know what's going on. You need to have permanent moorings so people don't go in and drop their anchors. You need to have demarcation moorings so you can say, okay, this area is no fishing and this area is this fishing. Swimmers are allowed in here. Uh, motorboats are not allowed in here. So it's quite a lot of signage. Um, also, you know, you're going to be collecting user fees like parks on land, this park on the sea. How are you going to do that? Who's going to do that? What system are you going to use? It takes money <laughs> and you need good people. And we did not have that. We still don't um, within the government of Barbados. We had said, OK, we're going to designate this area. We got the area. And then I went to a meeting, International Coral Reef Initiative, ICRI. And I heard uh, Nicholas Pascal giving a talk about um financing conservation and financing MPAs. And he had this really good idea about NGOs. So so not just government managing it by itself. And governments often have, you know, shifting priorities, don't have enough people, etc. His idea was for a consortium of local NGOs, non-governmental organizations, to co-manage alongside government. And these um, NGOs would find the funding to manage it so it would be complementary and then we were also he was also looking at different funding sources so not just grants but also looking at impact investment so when i heard this and he was looking for a pilot site and my hand was up before he finished speaking i was like, oh over here over here barbados <laughs> so once i had completed i had taken the the designation of the marine management area in Barbados to where I could, which which culminated with writing the cabinet paper and, and getting that sent off. Then I resigned from Coastal Zone Management Unit and I went to work with Blue Finance because one of the big issues for conservation is is money. You know, we, we are ecologists and we are uh, mainly scientists. We don't know anything about impact investment or financing conservation because that's not where our heads are, mm-hmm. you know? But it's needed. Everywhere you look, it's needed. You need to have money to finance these things. And this is what Blue Finance does. Blue Finance looks at finding that money so that the MPAs can run efficiently and effectively, as well as providing the technical expertise where it is needed. Everywhere is not the same. Some people need marine biology expertise. We can provide that. Some people need MPA, specifically MPA, um, user fee management. We can provide that. So we, we look at what you need or what the MPA needs and we provide the technical expertise. They all need entrepreneurial training because, <laughs> again, this is not what we do. Um, and yeah, so so that's that's Blue Finance. So it was a it was a natural fit for me. And, and I love it. I, I never like I said, I never thought about money. I've actually finding the financing to do this. Um, so it's been a it's been extremely interesting. Yeah. So what is your role exactly within Blue Finance? Like what does your I'm sure your day to day varies wildly, but maybe your week to week or just kind of general roles and responsibilities? Yeah, no, it, it doesn't it doesn't vary wild. Well, I'm I'm also working on a PhD, so I've kind of like kind of weaving that <laughs> that through everything that is happening, but <laughs> I'm now based in, in France and <laughs> not in Barbados. Um, mm-hmm. we tend to work on the project sites remotely from France. You just need a laptop. And then we actually visit the project sites periodically. Okay. So right now, for example, we have um, a project that is ongoing in the Philippines. And my, my title, my official title is Caribbean director, but I, I don't really do much of much directing. My focus is still <laughs> management and ecology. So as part of our financing strategy, okay, we combine grants and impact investment. Impact investment is, I guess, a, a relatively new sort of investment. Mm-hmm. Invest in system where they're not only looking at the financial impact, but they're also looking at social impact and environmental impact. So it's not like your traditional investors that just want to return on their investment, right? You have to also show social and environmental impacts. So in order to show these impacts, you have to be able to monitor and measure them. Mm-hmm. So my primary role, I mean, we look over the entire NPAs and decide what is required, what is not. But within that, they have something called key performance indicators. And these key performance indicators are important for the impact investors because these are what they look at to determine if they're having the impact or not. 
actually designing those KPIs with each project site. That is the primary thing um, that I work on and that I do. But of course, also speaking to all the Marines, the stakeholders who were involved in the MPA and actually designing the work plans and the MPA plans for management. So that's what I do primarily. And then we have some fun side jobs, you know, looking at virtual reality and trying to bring that all in to, you know, the ways in which you can educate people. And then, of course, obviously, public education is another another area that I work on quite a lot. You wear many different hats. <laughs> They're all C hats. <laughs> there you go. All C hats. Could you explain what key performance indicators you are specifically looking at are for and how they may change over different MPAs? There's some things that are general. So, for example, one of your indicators could be um, the number of herbivorous fish, herbivorous fish or fish that feed on algae. Like parrotfish. Yeah, like parrotfish. And too much algae on reefs is, is it's pretty bad. It smothers corals. It prevents recruits from study from settling, and it also harbors disease. We believe one indicator is the number of herbivorous fish. For us in the Caribbean, parrotfish is primary indicator. So one KPI might be percentage abundance of parrotfish. Right. So this is mm -hmm. you you would have to monitor so you know you have X X um, biomass of pirate fish this year. And then we're expecting with a well managed MPA that that biomass will go up. So that's like one indicator that you will track over time. Percentage abundance of hard coral, for example. Mm -hmm. This is one that you're, you you probably because of an MPA are not going to see like a wild increase like you would see in pirate fish. Corals grow very slowly. And, you know, there are a lot of factors sometimes outside the proximity of the MPA from land, um, nutrients coming down from land that you might not be able to control, but it should be a part of your work plan. But things like percentage increase in hard coral cover is another indicator you might look at. Percentage increase or percentage change in macroalgal cover. In the Caribbean, again, percentage increase in diadema. Diadema, these urchins, black urchins, and there were some primary herbivores. Um, in the Caribbean before they got killed out by yet another disease. So we need to, we want them to come back. Some of the things that you do in an MPA might be to encourage the diadema to come back. So that's another thing. So though, and these things will change based on where you are. So for example, if you're in the Pacific, they have a huge issue with the crown of thorn starfish, which we don't have in the Caribbean. That probably might be one of your key performance indicators. If one of the things you're doing in your MPA is removals of cots. As actually on that note, one of the other indicators to the Caribbean is the invasive lionfish, because that made its way into our waters from the Pacific. And in our waters, it's really, it, it's a supreme predator, it eats everything, <laughs> really high fecundity. It is crazy. So one of the indicators, you know, one of the things that you do in an MPA, and everybody should be doing it anyway, is trying to get rid and eliminate these gorgeous fish. So that would be another key performance indicator, depending on where you are. So that sort of thing. Did I fully answer your question? Yeah, no, that's that's a great, great explanation of what kind of some of the metrics that you look for to see, to gauge how the MPA is doing under your management. Right. Well, it, it's not so much a performance. Well, it is a performance indicator, but it, it's something called a MET. And it actually tracks the effectiveness of your MPA using some of these indicators. So this is like pulling it all together. And it's really important, mm -hmm. and I'm so sorry I forgot to mention it, because there's so many MPAs around the world that we call paper parks because they're really pretty on paper. The plants are very impressive, but in actuality, no one is doing anything, right? It's mm -hmm. not enough to just designate the MPA and say, yeah, I reached that 30% goal. You, it's, it's actually a way to show that your MPA is effective. It's actually doing something. So there are different ways of tracking it. And the one we use is called the, the MET, M-E-T-T. -T. And this is a way of showing that your MPA is reaching its targets and its goals as, as you said it would, or as you hoped it was, or as the money that you're putting into it is doing. So could you explain what MET stands for and a little bit how you use it to make sure that you're on track with these different MPAs? MET is short for Management Effectiveness Tracking Tool. And that is exactly what it does. 
it works using a scoring system. So you would score the same indicators or some of the same indicators. It depends on where you are. But you would use the same KPIs or key performance indicators within a MET and you will score periodically. It depends on the MPA, it depends on where you are, maybe once a quarter, maybe once a year. But you will score yourself on how these indicators have changed over time. So in the end, you end up with a number, one number or five different numbers that you can track. You can look from year to year and see or quarter to quarter and see if those numbers are increasing. So you are you are equating it to a number. Okay. Right. So so for example, if you're if you're looking at threats, right? Mm-hmm. One of the threats could be, could maybe be agriculture. And agriculture is a good one because that is something coming from land and not actually within the protected area. You could put the outputs of agriculture coming into the marine protected area. And if that impact is expected to be high, medium, low or are not applicable here, right? Mm-hmm. So you will rate it depending on what that impact is. And then you could also have another one that looks at resource use and harm, resource use fishing, how much fishing, how many fishers do we have? So a plan for your MPA might be, for example, to retrain fishers, to be tour guides, for example, or something else so that they're not fishing in this specific area. So the number of fishers within the MPA, uh, not within the MPA, but the number of fishers that exist within the area, for example, could be another indicator. Mm. Okay. So a few different metrics that you're looking at. A rough estimate, how many MPAs do you manage or help to manage around the world? So we have a pipeline of about 12 projects okay. that we are assisting with, and they are in different stages. So in some of them, we've actually, you know, signed co-management agreements with the governments and we're working through that. And others are not yet signed and we're working through that process with them. So at the moment, there are 12 NPAs that we are working with. So how this process kind of works to just get the ball rolling, you you co-manage with the government. So it's liaising with the local governments and also with impact investors. And you mentioned a little bit earlier about what an impactor investor is. It's not somebody that just is looking to get money out of their investment, but also looking at their overall impact, whether it's environmental or societal. Who typically is an impact investor? Are these foundations or like local stakeholders or are these just philanthropists found worldwide that just have an interest in MPAs? Right. So you would need to talk to a financier about that and not me. Remember, I'm just a marine ecologist, but I can tell you <laughs> that the, the impact investors that we're working with, they're named Althelia Morova, and they're managing the Sustainable Ocean Fund. So it's actually a little funny because the Sustainable Ocean Fund is has been created by development banks. So USAID, for example, EIB, the European Investment Bank, These development banks have actually put together a fund that is used for impact investment. Okay, so you work with a specific foundation or fund that people have already funneled money into to fund projects like this. It's not like you are trying to go out and find different stakeholders or partners for your specific projects. Well, I mean, we're still looking. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We're still looking. The Sustainable Ocean Fund is, is great. But there's no reason why, you know, it should only be one. And the other thing is that while impact investment is great, I'm really, I've really come from a place of thinking investors are the baddies to Mm -hmm. really seeing some good work done, you know, from investments in marine ecosystems and so on. It is a loan. It is not a grant. It is a loan. Mm. So we kind of have to get our, our mindsets around having to repay. What we do is we tend to blend it with grants, okay. okay? The idea is is that you don't want to rely on a grant to manage your MPA. That's, that's what we tend to do traditionally. And grants, I mean, you don't know if you're going to get the next one, right? So it's, it's quite difficult to have long-term sustainable planning relying on grants. And and the on the other side of the coin with impact investment is that you have to pay back and you have to pay back with interest. So the mm-hmm. the idea is is that if you can blend that finance so that you have impact investments and you also have grants, 
then the interest rate on the impact investment part will be less. Right. So you blend it. It's not just one. You use a variety of financing yeah. mechanisms to get the money that you need for the MPA. Okay. So how what are some methods that you employ to pay back? Does the MPA eventually yeah. make money it's in some capacity? Yes, MPAs can make money. And I mean, it, it it's it's almost crazy to think they couldn't. Well, not crazy, because when you look around the place, MPAs are always looking for money. But MPAs can generate <laughs> a lot of money. And it's it's done via user fees. So when I say a lot, I mean, nobody's going to get rich from an MPA. I mean, no no investor is going to get rich, you know, from investing in an, in an MPA. But they can get their money back, right? So if for MPAs, you're charged user fees, and divers know this because divers are all, always, um, you know, paying a user fee to enter a marine protected area. And it's just like a terrestrial park. You know, you come into a terrestrial park, it's a public space, you pay fee, that money really should go back into maintaining that public park. You come into this protected area, you pay your user fee, and those, it is that money that is primarily channeled then back in to the management and conservation of that space. And some of that money will go back to repay pay the loan also. In some cases, that's not going to be enough. So we're looking at other revenue streams. So, for example, um, having a visitor center, but, you know, not the old boring visiting, visitor centers where you go and, you know, you piece of newspaper tapped on a wall or whatever. We're looking at, you know, integrating virtual reality and 360 and really exciting things so that two things. One, people will come in and pay again <laughs> right. for this. And that money is channeled back also into marine conservation. But two, People who don't want to get wet, people who might come on a cruise ship for, you know, a couple of hours, locals who are still a little bit afraid of the sea and are not quite sure. All these people can still come in and, and the visitor center could be the first step to broaden in their awareness and appreciation of the marine environment. Things like that, making the underwater area, I don't want to say more beautiful because nothing could be more beautiful than a reef, but I mean, put in things in like sunken ships and make them interesting and exciting so divers can go off their underwater trail so you can learn as you go. Those are some of the tourist-related mechanisms we're looking at. Non-tourist-related mechanisms are things like introducing... The one I'm looking at is something called the Payment of the Ecosystem Service, where the marine stakeholders who benefit from the services provided by coral reefs, for example, hoteliers, whose hotels are usually in front of beaches, and those beaches are there courtesy of a coral reef, mm -hmm. that these will actually assist in paying for the conservation of that reef because it is delivering the ecosystem service that allows them to generate their money. So, it, you know, it's just a system of generating, you know, how much, what, what is the value of what you're receiving here and what are you willing to pay, what conservation methods or management measures can be put in place here. Yeah, we're looking at a variety of, of financing mechanisms to, to get money back in there. Amazing. That is such amazing work. And it's uh, really important. I mean, obviously, we talk a lot about MPAs in the marine conservation world and how wonderful they are. But yeah, it, the big ugly truth is that they do cost money. And it's good to know that there are ways for them to also produce revenue and to be sustainable rather than just putting a landmark on a map and saying this is protected and then there's no actual teeth to it. Exactly. One, one I heard one gentleman say, and I'm sorry that I, I can't remember his name, but he says you can't be green if you're in the red. And, you know, mm. it's he's entirely true. You cannot really do good conservation work if you don't have the money to do it. Yeah, that makes sense. So I want to shift back a little bit to your story. So going from Barbados to France to do your PhD, what, that's quite the leap. What, what, why? <laughs> why leave this <sighs> Well, I, I came to France for personal reasons. There you go. And, and while here, um, the opportunity to do this PhD basically fell into my lap. And, it, and it's interesting because I can combine the ecology part of my work, the management part of my work, and this newfound financing interest. 
into into one study. So it's it's actually been very very interesting. So what what exactly is your PhD then? What is your thesis? So I'm looking I'm looking at financing mechanisms for marine conservations. That should come as no surprise to anyone. Right. I started off looking at all the different ecosystem services provided by coral reefs and how they could be financed. And eventually, I've kind of whittled it down to one ecosystem service, which is coastal protection. And I think this is one that most people have not looked at. Many people have looked at, you know, things surrounding coral reef aesthetics, you know, tourists coming in and paying to see big whales and dolphin and, and corals and so on, but not coastal protection, which is very, it's a very complex ecosystem service. And it's very important, especially for small island developing states, and especially with global climate change, where we're expecting there's going to be sea level rise and, you know, flooding and so on. So I am looking at that. And I am looking at payment for ecosystem services, the coastal protection, if it's feasible, if it's not feasible. And if it is, then what actually should be paid, what mechanism should be set up to do so. So that is the that is the core of what I'm looking at. Amazing. So, I mean, this ties into your hotel paying for the ecosystem services that the Coral Reef provides. This is exactly what that is, correct? Exactly. Yep. Okay. Awesome. So a couple of things before we wind up for the day. I, one of my very favorite questions to ask is what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be like the most magical day ever on the Coral Reef. And it's just something that you love to share. Or it's like, you know, a, a day in the field where things went wrong. And it's a really great story now. But at the time, you were kind of in it. Hmm. Field stories. Maybe I should modify that. What's your favorite ocean story or stories to tell? It doesn't have to be. Uh, it doesn't have to be work related. Okay. So one of my favorite stories in Barbados. We used. It's kind of sad though. But anyway, in Barbados <laughs> we used to have. Um, we have this this pretty deep wreck called the Savanakita, and um, we used to have this huge barracuda. We named him George. And he lived, well, you know, he lived in and around this, this Tabanakita. So every time he did the dive, you saw him. And when I was a new diver and I heard about George and I was so excited about it. And we went down on one dive and we saw George, but I saw two barracudas. I saw two huge barracudas. And it, it looked like, you know, one was mirroring the other. So I thought it was a, a mating dance or, or something. It was just absolutely amazing. I was also narc. That's my excuse. It's nitrogen, nitrogen narcosis. When you dive and you go past a certain depth, um, for most people, that's like 100 feet. But for me, it was, it was 80 feet. <laughs> I got, I got narc really easily. Your, your, your perception of things changes is as if you're a little drunk, a little tipsy. That, that's it. It just has to do with the amount of nitrogen in your blood at the time. And when you go into shallower water, it goes away. Usually during deep diver training, your instructors try to intentionally get you narc so you know what it feels like, so that you're under supervision the first time it happens. <laughs> yep. But that's, that's actually not another funny story, because when I was doing my dive training, it, the way that they checked it was to for you to um, do a, a problem, a mathematical problem, and I'm notoriously yeah. bad at maths. But anyway, you do it on the surface, and then you do it down at like 100 feet. So I did it. I did it on the surface and I got it wrong. <laughs> and then down at 120 feet, we did it and I got it right. So the instructor was cracking up. You know, he was saying, maybe you need to come down here and work out all of your issues. But um, <laughs> yeah, get, get back to George. So, you know, we had gone down and I saw these two amazingly beautiful barracudas mirroring each other's movements. And I'm here thinking now this is a mating dance and I'm so excited. And, you know, we come back off the dive and I can't even rip off my guard. I thought, did you see those two barracudas? Did you see their dance? And um, my partner was, he laughed so hard he fell off his boat. I will never forget it. <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> and he came back and when he came back, he's laughing. He said, Angie, that was one barracuda and a bubble, an air bubble. You know, so many divers go down and the air bubbles coalesce and it forms uh. like 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 one so it was like a mirror 
So it was George and his reflection, and that is why one was mirroring the other. Um, yeah. That's and that explains nitrogen narcosis really well. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think so it funny. actually does. I think it does. That's a great story, though. Yeah. And then the spearfishers like killed George and ate him after that. Can you imagine? Oh, that's sad. But they got, but they got cigatera poison. And so, I mean, it was kind of some poetic justice. <laughs> okay, I was gonna say usually barracuda, especially that size, have ciguatera, so that that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, certainly So, um, at the end of each episode, I have I leave the audience with an ask to go forth and do, and you and you have a really wonderful one. So, what would you like the audience to go do? I would really like everyone to get in the sea. Put on a mask and a snorkel. You don't have to put on a tank if you don't want to, but at least a mask and a snorkel and just immerse yourself and go and see coral reefs. I mean, there are some of the most amazing ecosystems you'll come across. Television is doing a fantastic job of bringing it into your living room, but it's a completely different sensation to actually submerge yourself and have a look. So I'm, I'm asking everyone, if you can't swim, please learn how to swim. Put on a mask and a snorkel. And once you do that, get a dive tank or start free diving and just, you know, immerse yourself. You will love it. It's a wonderful ask. It's true. There's nothing like actually being immersed in a reef. It's a wonderful feeling. Yeah, it really is. If the audience wants to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and or Blue Finance, where's the best place to do so? You can uh, go to our Blue Finances uh, page, which is www.blue-finance.org. Or you can email me. Oh, that's absolutely fine. My email address is cxseaeggz at gmail.com. And I also manage a Facebook page that's called uh, Marine Management Areas Barbados. And I tend to put a lot of information there. And you can also find me on Facebook under my full name, Anjanie Brathwaite. So however, but yeah, I'm always happy to talk about the work I'm doing and the work I should be doing. So yeah. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, thank you. And I'll put a link to all of that in the show notes for listeners for this episode. This was a lot of fun chatting with you today, Angie. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me. As I'm sure you notice, I love talking about my work. So yeah, anytime. (laughs) Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.